Wow, I don't know who you were talking about. Sounds like a pretty nice guy. I'd like to meet that guy, but don't recognize him. Uh, today we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. I thought I'd give you a little bit of time to go ahead and turn there. 1 John, 1 John 3, 2, and 3. Uh, this is a sermon called The Power of Biblical Hope. Uh, I'm not going to wave any palm fronds up here or anything like that. I don't have any visual gags related to Palm Sunday, but maybe there'll be a tie-in there. This is not a specifically Palm Sunday message. I do want to say a thank you. Um, thank you that I can be neurotically nervous about the sermon instead of you. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> so glad to be here at Trinity and, and the grace of this place is just washing all over me. Uh, it's a wonderful mingling of memory and hope for the future uh, for this church, and just even being in this room is, is awesome for me, but especially worshiping with you this morning, uh, seeking God, being together, uh, has already, genuinely, I mean this sincerely, just washed all over me with, with the grace of the Lord. So thank you for that, and thank you, Lord. And we do pray that God would, would breathe life into his word today. So would you stand uh, while I read this passage? Just a kind of a, a mnemonic. You know, in medicine we have mnemonics, things to help us remember. We're remembering when we stand that this is the eternal, perfect Word of God we're reading. And I'm going to be reading from the NIV. I know that we're an ESV culture. Sorry about that. Uh, But that's how I first learned this, and I'm afraid I'm going to get mixed up if I start mixing that. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Okay, you can be seated. So these verses describe perfectly the state of the Christian in the church age. After the death and the resurrection and the ascension into heaven of Jesus, but before his second coming, they give us a description of what the world that we live in, the, the life that we live. They also give us a reason to look forward to another world. They, they, they fill us with the hope of heaven. So when I use the word biblical hope, I'm, I'm going to use that over and over again, I am literally describing the hope described in the Bible, not necessarily hope as we use it described in our culture. So I'm a big believer as kind of a, a teacher in defining things. I think, you know, it's the first thing you do in a medical talk is you always define the condition that you're talking about. So I want to give a definition for biblical hope. Now, if you're in seminary, please don't take this to your professors or anything like that and and, and correct them or anything. This is just my definition that we're going to be working with today. So biblical hope is a confident expectation of a certain and favorable outcome in the future. I'll say it again. Hope, as defined by the Bible or as presented by the Bible, is a confident expectation of a favorable outcome in the future that, that, that's certain. So uh, one thing you mentioned, you notice I mentioned the word future. Um, and when I look at this text before us, I notice some interesting things about future is that there's, there's actually present tense and future tense used in this, in this text. And if you have PTSD from English class, don't worry. We won't go too much beyond that. Um, but notice that there's kind of two versions of what it is to be a Christian that are presented here. There's two tenses of the verbs The first one is a present tense. John says, now we are children of God. Or maybe yours says, we're God's children now. 
We are God's children now. The Bible says over and over again that we are the children of God, that we are beloved of God, that we're saints, that we're holy ones. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 says, You believe in him, and Jesus, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jesus said, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. This is a present reality in which we live. But that's not the whole story, right? Because John goes on using this future tense. What we will be has not yet been made known. Or maybe it says, and what we will be has not as yet appeared. Maybe your version says. There's something that we haven't gotten yet. The Bible also teaches us that in this world, we're strangers. We're sojourners. We're just passing through. So it's not our final home. And the present is not the final story about the believers in Christ. So we live in this tension. There is a tension. Maybe that's our first uh, point of the sermon. We live in a tension of the already and the not yet. The, the present tense and the future tense. And one of the things that's so great about this, like all the truths of the Bible, is it completely fits reality, doesn't it? I mean, it accords with what our hearts tell us. It resonates with our experiences. Um, and so if we, we can say truly today that we are experiencing the grace and power and love of the risen Jesus Christ in our midst today. We are filled with joy, just as Peter said. And so if we have this view of maybe some modern world religions, uh, I saw the Buddha painted on the, the garage across the street there, or maybe even the church, the Christian church, at some stages of history like the Middle Ages, or maybe even some locations like in Eastern Europe where I've been, spent a time in the churches, there's this view in the church sometimes that this reality is just something you've got to suck it up and get through, and better stuff's coming, so just hunker down, get over it, you've got to deal with it, and it'll be over soon, and then maybe something good will happen, maybe. But don't smile, right? So that's not really being true to what the Bible teaches us when it gives us these glorious promises of the present tense, the present, that we, what we already have in Christ. But let's be honest, we don't have much trouble with that in the evangelical church in America, do we? We have the opposite problem, this sort of jingoistic kind of tokenism in which we got it all together, and uh, you better be smiling when you walk through the door of the church because people may think there's something wrong in your life, that you have problems. And we all know that problems are sinful, all right? And, and it's a sin to be sad. And let's be honest, if we just turned on our televisions this morning, um, right now, and I hope you're not doing that on your, on your phone, by the way, but you would probably hear a message that we've already got everything we need because we're filled with the Spirit and everything's wonderful. And let's be honest, that's not really true to what the Bible teaches either because that's denying the reality of sin. It's denying the reality of suffering. It's denying the struggles we have. It's denying who we are in Christ. So which is true? They're both true, the already and the not yet. We live between Advents as believers. The first Advent was Bethlehem. The first Advent was the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. An Advent means a coming. We live between Advents, that first Advent and the second Advent, the second coming of Jesus. So I think the next thing we need to do is maybe take on that issue, the second coming of Jesus. And the first thing we've got to ask is, when is it going to happen? Well, Jesus was asked that question, Mark 13, privately, some of the inner circle came and said, you know, when's this going to happen? Will you give us an idea? And you all know what he said. 
In Mark 13, 4, the first thing he says is, see to it that no one misleads you. So I, I take a couple of messages from that immediately. One is, this is important. See to be careful. You know, so there's this caution associated with that. And secondly, that there's a lot of confusion about the issue and that we can be misled easily. See to it that no one misleads you. He goes on later in the chapter, Mark 13. You don't need to turn there necessarily. Mark 13, 32 and 33. And he says, but of that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. We all know that, right? We love to preach that. We don't really know. Jesus did not tell us when he was going to return. But if we read our Bibles carefully, he did give us a time frame. We can sort of narrow things down a little bit. Matt's getting very nervous now. Uh, He gave us a time frame about when he's going to return. Let me illustrate. You parents can relate to this. Anybody who dropped their children off, and I know you, the kids are now in like Sunday school, because I, I saw Matt Curtis, he's keeping your kids earlier, my buddy Matt. And so I know that you dropped your kids off this morning, and you said something to them very similar to the words of Jesus that he says to us in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. So you said to them, as they, they said to you first, when are you coming back? And let's be honest, you didn't really know, right? Because normally you might know exactly when you're coming back, but there's a guest preacher today. And Matt told me I had, what, up to two hours. Isn't that what you said? Okay, so you don't really know when you're going to return exactly. So what did you say to them? You said almost the same thing Jesus said in Revelation 22. You said, Behold, I am coming quickly, or soon. I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So you might have said, blessed are you if you heed the words of your teacher. I'll be back soon. Be good. That's basically what Jesus is saying to us. Uh, A little more than that maybe, right? And he repeats this multiple times in that last chapter of the Bible, right up to and including the next to the last verse in the entire canon of Scripture. The last recorded words of Jesus Christ to humanity in the Bible. And they are... Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So the second coming, it's clear that just as we live in tension about who we are as believers in the already and the not yet, there's a tension regarding the second coming of Jesus. It's a very interesting tension. We're commanded to take heed. We're not just going to ignore it. We're to wait patiently, and we are to expect eagerly, simultaneously. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't say, you don't know, so what would we say to our kids? So calm down, try not to think about it, don't worry about it, go back to sleep, you know, whatever. Jesus didn't say that. He said, you don't know, so be ready. You don't know, so be waiting. You don't know, so be eagerly anticipating. We're turning back to Mark 13. He says this, Mark 13, 36, be on the alert, lest the master of the house should come and find you asleep. You see, there's a danger if we don't cling to our hope in Christ, our heavenly hope, our biblical hope, that we'll fall asleep. Now, what does asleep mean here? Um, I'm just going to suggest a couple of examples of ways we can fall asleep. What I really mean is sleeping means living as though Christ would never return, to fall asleep. There's, There's different versions of falling asleep. The first, practiced in the church commonly, is what I'm going to call holy hibernation. 
holy hibernation, we're just kind of plunkered down in the church, just sort of waiting things out, not really engaged in the disciplines of the Christian life, not really serving, not really awaiting Christ, acting like he's never going to come back. We're just sort of putting in our time until maybe something better happens. Then there's another version of falling asleep, and I'm sure Jesus had this in mind as well. I had to come up with a cute name. I said, it's a carnal coma, a carnal coma. Here we're anesthetized and dulled and numbed by the pleasures of this world. John said in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or anything in the world. For every, Whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. We can be numbed and anesthetized by the passing pleasures of the world if we start thinking that this is all there is to life, to the Christian life. So I know what you're thinking. Great. This message is going to be about asceticism. We need to deny ourselves. We can't enjoy this world. We need to be very serious about our faith. You know, I don't think that's true at all. I believe genuinely that a Christian can enjoy this world more than a non-Christian. Someone who has biblical hope, who's really clinging to their hope, can actually enjoy this world, their time in this world, more than someone who has no hope. The problem is, we put too many expectations on this life. Think of all the things we pile on to our lives here. We expect life to be easy. We expect life to be comfortable. We expect to die in our sleep at age 108. Let's be honest, don't we? That's not what we were created for. We were not created to die in our sleep at age 108. Some of us may have the fortune of that happening. But in fact... If we pile all that hope onto this world, all that weight of glory that God has promised, this, this world and this life are just not meant to support that. They were not created to do so. It's going to collapse, and we're going to come, become bitter and disappointed. The great thing is about biblical hope, it does not require us to hate our lives here today. It does not require us to hate the good things in this world. It enables us, in fact, to rejoice in our sufferings. And we'll come back to sufferings later. Let me give you a personal example. And I know you're thinking, I'm going to talk about sufferings. This is great. He's going to talk about how he was interrogated by the KGB or maybe his kidney stones or his critical illness. Sorry, I got nothing there. This is going to be very trivial, uh, embarrassingly so, and I hope and pray that it's not self-indulgent. For years, I have had a big struggle with something, really going back to probably the beginning of college. And that struggle was and is Sunday night. Do you know what I'm talking about? The heaviness, the weight of Sunday night when you're about to go back to school and there are exams to study for. You're about to go back to medical school. You're about to go back to residency and start a new rotation. You're about to go back to work. What a weight. And when it's vacation... Sunday night after a vacation, I would just go to a black, dark place. And I'd be asking questions like this of God. God, when is life going to be easy? When am I going to feel satisfied and fulfilled? When are things going to flow? When am I going to feel connected? When is there going to be a sense of adventure? When are things just going to happen? When, 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 Lord? And then I realized about 15 years ago, Oh, when I go to heaven, that's when that's going to happen. 
That's never, never going to happen in this life. Those feelings of longing and yearning and wistfulness and frustration and struggle that I have. Not only can this world not support all the weight of our hope and the weight of glory, Sunday night cannot support the weight of eternity. Even a hundred years of our lives, if we're so blessed to live that long, that will not support the weight of eternity. And when we try to rest all our hope on Monday morning, we try to rest all our hope on our job or our spouse or our church or even Matt McCullough. Even Matt McCullough cannot support the weight of glory or the weight of biblical hope or the weight of eternity. There's only one thing that can do that. Work is cursed. The Bible teaches us that. Somebody asked me the other day, what's your dream job? And I was like, oh, no. I have my dream job. And I'm still struggling. Because work was a cursed entity. But I will say this to encourage you, instead of discourage you. Letting go of that expectation that work was going to fill all that hole in my heart that only Christ would fill, suddenly the burden got lighter. What a blessing. Thank you, God. He didn't promise that that would happen, but the burden became lighter. You see, we don't have to stuff all those feelings we have of yearning and dissatisfaction in this world. We don't have to pretend that they don't exist. What we need to do is we need to set them firmly on something that can hold them up. What did Peter say? He admonished us in 1 Peter 2. Set your hope fully. Set your hope. Rest your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's a sure foundation. That's something that can support your hope and nurture your hope. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He was talking to people who probably knew something about hunger and thirst, maybe more than we do. Blessed are you when you feel yearnings and longings. You're so blessed to feel those things because you're going to be satisfied. You know, years ago... Uh, I was at a community group. What do you guys have? Are they called community groups? Community group, midweek Bible study, whatever. And somebody had made this sumptuous dessert, this awesome creation there. And a college student walked in and looked at it. I saw him look at it, and I heard him mumble, man, I picked the wrong day to eat before I came. When we get to see the bread of heaven, the bread of life, when we get to drink living water. We're going to be so thankful that we did not fill up on the things of this world. We want to show up with a ravenous appetite at the feast of God and not saying, you know, I already ate a bunch of junk down there, a bunch of junk food. I just don't have any appetite anymore. God wants us to be hungry. It is okay to feel that yearning as long as we set our hope on an appropriate object. All right. I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about suffering because I've alluded to suffering a couple of times. I alluded to rejoicing in our suffering. And I want to talk about suffering briefly and maybe just maybe dispel a couple couple of myths about suffering. The first one is this. Are we even allowed to talk about suffering in America, in church? Because, you know, as soon as that word gets brought up, we kind of start getting this, oh, gee, shucks, we don't really suffer here. We can't really talk about that because we know about how the terrible suffering of our brothers in other parts of the world who are poor and starving and thirsty and beaten for their faith and they lose everything. And, you know, I I don't want to make light of that. 
And I definitely don't want to make too much of my own suffering Sunday night. That's pretty pitiful in comparison to starving to death or being beaten for Christ. But, again, we're not being true to the Bible if we ignore the fact that we suffer. Because the last time I read the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, God gave a judgment. He cursed the ground. He cursed work. He cursed relationships. He condemned to futility our work here. He condemned us to, a, not condemned, he, he, he judged that we would be in a long battle. There was going to be a long battle that we were engaged in. He also declared victory ahead of time, looking forward. But there's no asterisk there in my Bible. I was looking for that at the judgment of God in Genesis 3. I was kind of looking for excluded our people who live in America in the 21st century. We're not excluded from that. There's no asterisk. There's no footnote. We are not excluded from suffering. We don't, we don't need to make a big deal about our suffering, or, you know, the marginalization of the church uh, in America in the 21st century and whatever other suffering we may have. But we also don't need to ignore it. It is real. Romans 8.22 says this, the whole creation, the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So if we make this place, America in the 21st century, out to be heaven on earth, if we pretend that we've seen the face of God in church. And that's what we do, isn't it? He said, John says in our, in our, our text here, when he appears, we know that when he appears we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is. That hasn't happened. And we walk in here pretending like we've actually seen the face of God. We have not seen the face of God. And that, in and of itself, is a form of suffering. But we insult God when we pretend that we have and pretend that this is heaven. In his hand, in his right hand, are pleasures forevermore, not in the United States in the 21st century. So we don't ever want to overstate our suffering. Um, And let me tell you this too. Usually that all golly gee shucks attitude about suffering is usually people under 70. I'm a physician. Very few of my 70-plus-year-olds and certainly 80-plus-year-olds and 90-plus-year-olds are talking about how we don't ever suffer in America. You know, there's this myth that if you're rich, well, you can get all the medical care and you never suffer. Believe me, we are all going to suffer. Unless we have the fortune of dying suddenly and tragically, we will suffer. Uh, most people in America today die of long, slow, progressive, declining illnesses. And guess what? There's suffering involved. We were not exempted from suffering by being born here in this time and place. Okay, but... Maybe we were exempted from this by being Christians, right? Like I said, turn on, the, turn on the radio, turn on the TV. We don't suffer. Glory to God. We have the Holy Spirit. We've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. We don't suffer. We don't struggle, right? It's not what the Bible says. I quoted Romans 8 earlier, saying that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It goes on to say, not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, I love how he has to emphasize that, groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved. All right, in hope we have been saved. Let's dig in and talk about hope. Let's dig into hope. I gave you a definition earlier. Let me give you a description of hope now, kind of a working description. Hope is our response to the joy we have as being, when we're, because we're dearly loved children of God. Hope is also our response to the groaning we have as a result of suffering 
and being fallen, broken, sinful people in a cursed world. Hope is not wishful thinking. You know, hope is a confident expectation. Remember that? Hope's not... In our culture, when we say hope, we're just talking about, I kind of hope that happens, wishful thinking. Hey, I know all about that. I have been a Vanderbilt sports fan for 32 years. I know all about wishful thinking. And I confess my sin. I have actually somehow or another passed that on to my sons. They're Vanderbilt sports fans too. And there's a mantra we say when you're a Vanderbilt sports fan. If your children are cheering, and it goes something like this. Halfway through the game, Vandy's up by a touchdown or 10 points, looking pretty good. My son starts cheering. Son, son, stop, stop, stop. Do not, what? Do not get your hopes up. Why? Because I don't want him to be crushed. And he was so many, many times. It was like child abuse taking him to those things. That is not what biblical hope is like. Romans 5.5 says, Hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. In fact, rather than saying, Whoa, 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 hang on, hang on. Don't get your hopes up. The Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says you get your hopes up so much that you invest everything. You buy every bit of gear you can buy. You show up. You get season tickets. You invest everything in this because I guarantee you it is not going to disappoint you. In fact, you should invest so much of your hope, so much of your life in the appearing of Jesus Christ that if he failed you, you would be utterly crushed. But we're not going to be crushed if we do that. Because he will not fail us. Because that's the the next part about hope. Hope has an object. Hope is not just this formless, shapeless feeling. You know, we do that with hope in our culture. I'm I'm a hopeful person. I heard that phrase once. Hope is my philosophy. What are you hoping for? I don't know, but I'm hopeful. It's kind of like Thanksgiving, right? I'm so thankful. Would you like to write a thank you note? Well, I don't believe anybody to write one to. I'm I'm just thankful. I'm not thankful to anybody. But hope has to have an object. When Monday morning is your hope or Sunday night is your hope, that's a pretty, pretty poor object. When Jesus Christ is your hope, he can support it. He can augment it. He can energize you. He can can give you true biblical hope. Hope is active. So I do want to say one corrective there. I've been talking about heaven over and over and over again. You know, hope of heaven, heavenly hope. Um, There's an old gospel song called Jesus is Your Ticket to Heaven. Um, and it's probably a great song, and probably the guy who wrote that is awesome. Do you know that song? I see some smiles. Jesus is your ticket to heaven. Next week, all right? Um, Actually, probably not after I say what I'm about to say. Um, The thing that bugs me about that is, you know, you hear that, I can't wait to get to heaven and see those streets of gold. I can't wait to get to heaven and eat that food. I can't wait to get to heaven. You know, if Jesus is just your ticket, you know, what's a ticket? ticket is some leaf, you know, just falling apart little piece of paper here that you keep in your pocket and it just sort of is grungy and peeling and fading and frayed. And it doesn't... Can you imagine getting to heaven? And somebody says, you got your ticket? Oh, yeah, Jesus. Let me... Where did I put him? Where is he? Yeah, here's my ticket. Can I get in to see the good stuff now? Oh, but no, but, but he is the good stuff. Jesus is... Jesus, the face of Christ. We know, first of all, we're confident, that when he appears... We will be like him because we got a ticket in and we're going to see Disney World. No, because we'll see him as he is. That defines heaven, to see Christ as he is. I wish we had a whole 
hour. I, two hours, right? We do have an hour to talk about seeing the face of Christ and the face of Christ. The problem is, I don't know what it looks like. I just know that it is everything that our hopes could ever dream for multiplied by infinity. Make no mistake about hope. We can be confident of this. We have an object, a sure foundation. Hope is practical. Hope is not just a feeling or an attitude. Hope is an action. Think about this for a second. You business guys. There's some business guys. You don't have to raise your hands. If you knew that there was an investment that was going to bear a return of 100 times what you put into it, would you say, oh, that's nice? No, of course not. You'd, sell, you'd mortgage your house. You'd sell everything you have, and you'd plop it all down into that investment, wouldn't you? If you were absolutely convinced, medical people, some researchers here, if you knew that you could unlock, that this, this, this idea that you had, this chemical pathway, this cytokine, this whatever it is, was going to lead to a Nobel Prize and cure cancer, would you be more likely or less likely to get out of bed in the morning and go into that research lab? Hope motivates us. Hope drives us. Hope pushes us to do these things. When we become convinced of the Lordship of Christ, when we're confident that every knee will bow and every tongue confess, that motivates us to get out and act and do. And we're going to talk about some of those actions in a minute. And Make no mistake about it. God has given us the hottest stock tip that you can ever have. There's an investment we can make today that is going to blow the top off Wall Street. It's the greatest investment you can ever make. And it's time for us to buy tickets. It's time for us to sell everything we have. It's time for us to put everything we have into this. Hope is like a gun that fires or a bell that rings when the last lap of the race starts. You guys know what I'm talking about? The bell lap or the gun lap? Guys have been running around for a while. You kind of get lulled into it. And suddenly, the gun fires the last lap. Okay, maybe you're not track people. I know track season's going on. Let's talk about another sporting event that is near and dear to my heart. I mean, just a week ago, right? The Final Four, March Madness, college basketball. Still got to get you and Walter to one of our games over there at Vanderbilt. I love college basketball. But I noticed over the years, I'm a season ticket holder, been to many, many games. You can get kind of lulled to sleep watching the game, you know, kind of back and forth, back and forth. And it's fun and exciting. And suddenly something happens. You hear this. Kind of you're, you're starting to droop a little bit. And you hear, one minute, one minute remaining. And suddenly it shakes you. Oh my goodness, the game's nearly over. It's, and, and, and suddenly everybody just, you can't even help it. Spontaneous. You don't think about it. It's not a conscious decision. You rise to your feet, and the intensity is so unbelievable, and the the climax is coming. One minute remaining, and I'll often say to my son, this is it, son, this is it right here. Let's watch. Make no mistake about it. Jesus has fired the gun lap. He has saying to us, one minute, one minute remaining. This should create an intensity. How How do we respond as fans at the basketball game? when we hear that announcement? Well, I'll tell you what we don't do. We don't say, you know what? There's so much time left. I'm going to go get some popcorn and candy and load up on junk food. I'll see you later. You know, let me know when it's over. You miss out on the action if you do that. The other thing we don't say is, you know, it's pretty much over. I think I'm going to go home. I mean, okay, occasionally we say that if you're behind. <laughs> if your team's behind. 
But when it's really neck and neck and you can't wait to see how it's going to end, we know how it's going to end. We at least know the final score. We know who wins. But I can't wait to see him make that jump shot. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be every great sporting moment. And by the way, the greatness of sports is the glory of God, just like the greatness of everything in this earth, those buds and those flowers. It's all about the glory of God. You people who hate sports, I apologize for saying that. But how should we respond? Well, sometimes we act like the game's already over. You know, I have literally seen in my lifetime in Nashville, I have seen end times fever take over. I'm not kidding. Uh, I have seen people quit their jobs. I've known of this happening. Uh, But there are probably more subtle ways of that that happening. One would be the student who comes to me and says, yeah, I didn't really study that, you know, because... I'm focusing on ministry, you know, and I, and I figured I probably should not devote myself to my studies as much as ministry, and I'm, I'm ministering, and I'm, my thought is, well, like, how come this studying isn't part of your ministry? Isn't that what God's called you to be? Well, no, he's going to come back. It's pretty, the game's over. The game's over. I don't, I don't need to worry about all those details. There are even more subtle ways of manifesting this. One is this over-triumphalism, that, this shallow triumphalism that makes light of winning the world for Christ. You know, you go to these missions conferences, and boy, I'm not, I don't mean to mock any of that because I admire those people, the missionaries and the, and the missiologists. But sometimes there's this triumphalism. You know, I can see this happening. We can do this. We got the numbers. We got, here's our technology. Here's the people we got out there. This is doable. I mean, I, I really see that we can win the world for Christ pretty soon. You know, a couple of years ago, um, I was in a, what some people consider to be the largest unreached country on earth. And I drove for 11 hours with a missionary there. He'd been a missionary there for 15 years. We drove for 11 hours through the heart of that, of that country. Passed through all these little villages, some towns, some cities. And every time we passed through a community, I'd say, so are there any workers here? You don't use the, that M word when you're over in this country. Are there any workers here? No. How about this village? Nobody. Has anybody ever... No, 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 no. 11 hours worth. Oh, well, there's a single woman here. One single girl in this kind of culture? Yeah, there's a couple here. They had some real struggles, and they're thinking about leaving. And I'm telling you, my feeling at the end of that was, there is no way we are ever going to reach this country. It's impossible. We cannot win the world for Christ. That's why it's going to be incredible and glorious when it happens. I don't know what that's going to look like, but it is going to happen. And we can know that because Jesus is saying to us, one minute, one minute remaining. He is firing the gun. He's ringing the bell with scriptures like this. John, 1 John 2.18. Dear friends, this is the last hour. 1 Peter 4.4, the end of all things is near. Revelation 22.20, I am coming quickly. I am coming soon. Can you hear the urgency of Jesus? There's a warning and an encouragement. And this should stir us from our slumber and rouse us to action. Hope does not paralyze. Hope does not make us... Like Hope stirs us. So how do we respond when we have true biblical hope, when our hope is fixed on Christ and nothing else and nothing less? How should we respond? By the way, this is the applications 
section of the sermon. And that's the end, so you can be more hopeful too, right? I know some of you are thinking, I bet this is going to be a missions application. You are absolutely right. When we're convinced that all those, that, that country is going to be reached, we know it's going to be reached. can't imagine how. Does that paralyze us? No, it gives us hope to carry on because we know that we can't lose with Jesus because his name is going to be proclaimed because those people are going to bow. We know that that country will be reached someday because he won't come back. The second advent won't happen until he does come back. There's a missions application to rouse us to service or a money application, right? I talked about investing everything for the kingdom of God. You're welcome, Matt, by the way. We're going to take up an offering now. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, had, I met with a financial counselor years ago. He said something that has just blown me away for years. He, you know, these financial counselors, they have all these computer programs that, you know, calculate if you invest this, then you have so much, and all those actuarial tables and all that. And, you know, and, they, and they always sort of say, if you live this long, then you'll have this much. If you live this long, then you need to save this much. And he said, well, forget that for a second. And just consider this. You live a lot longer after you die than before you die. You should invest your money accordingly. I heard a great phrase this week. I read a great phrase in my quiet time in Luke. Jesus talked about being rich toward God. I mean, what a great thing that we can invest. We can't take it with us. We know that, right? Can't take our money with us. But as somebody said, we can send it ahead of us into eternity and invest it there in the kingdom of God. What about other applications? What about service and personal devotion, the disciplines of the Christian life? When we have a hope in Christ, we can serve other people because we're not afraid of getting used up because we're going to get filled again. When we have a hope in Christ, we don't want to sleep late. We want to read our Bibles because we are so excited about what he's going to do. And, and again, take part in, apply in any other way you want to there. Then there's one final application. John had said in this passage, we know that when he appears we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. Seeing his face. That hasn't happened yet, right? Later in 1 John 4.4, or maybe it's 4.12, I think it's 4.12, he says something that's a little bit of an ouch statement. No one has ever seen God. And he's right. We've never seen God we're children living in this crazy existence between advents. We live in the, the now and the not yet, the already and the not yet. We're dearly loved children of God. We're strugglers. We're sinners. We're becomers. What in the world do we do in the meantime? John tells us in that same passage, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. I think this is probably the greatest application of any sermon or teaching. It is that we love God, believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and as a result, we love each other. Let me pray. Lord, I just pray that we would all be able to now to take all those longings and all those hopes that we have and take them off whatever we've been putting them on Um, I pray you'd help us to do that. Give us that grace. Help us to send them to you and and fix them on you and and to do what Peter, our brother Peter, our older brother tells us to do. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
Thank you that you've given us a hope, Lord. Thank you that you haven't left us without a testimony. Thank you that you haven't even left us in the dark. You've given us the light of your word. You've given us the light of the teaching of Jesus. You've given us the beautiful and precious promises that say he is coming. Not only coming, but coming soon. And Lord, we don't know when that is. We can't define that. But we do look to you like those little children in in the uh, children's area today. We're looking to their parents, trusting you. We trust that you'll come back. We're eagerly waiting for you. We're cautious. We don't want to give our hearts to things here that, that are inappropriate. So give us wisdom. Give this church wisdom, Lord, to set their hopes on Christ and his appearing and not get deceived and not get um, by, by other promises or, or just sidetracked by things that are less worthy than Jesus. God, we praise you that your face is all we're ever going to need or desire. It's going to be bigger and better. I can't wait to see it, Lord. We're straining even now to see your face. We can't see it, but we thank you that we have the Spirit in the meanwhile. And we have each other. We have such a great opportunity to love each other. Thank you for that. Bless this church, Father. Bless these dear brothers and sisters in Christ today. I pray in your name. Amen.